Are you an HR department of one trying to figure out how to balance task and strategy while keeping up with changes in regulatory compliance? Do you need a fresh outlook on old topics? Then stop what you're doing, grab your coffee, and get ready to recharge. If you have people, you have problems to solve and things to do. Your host is Brenda Neckvottle, a 20-year human resource professional, ready to explore the HR industry with veterans of business and life, with fresh eyes and new ideas. Learn about the rapidly evolving changes in employment law around the country, as well as new tactics to deploy and build engagement in your work. Workforce. If you're looking to implement new practices to make your job easier in HR, then this podcast is for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Best Practices in Human Resources podcast. My name is Brenda Neckbottom. And if you are a first time listener, I am so excited to welcome you to the show. Thank you so very much for joining in. And if you are a returning listener, thank you, oh my gosh, for continuing to stay on this journey. Um, it's absolutely fantastic and very, very fortunate. So today, we're going to get right into it. Uh, today, we're going to talk about employment law changes that are sweeping the nation across the, across the United States. Um, we do have a really cool topic on five different ways that a company can get sued by an employee. So we're going to talk about some of those things. Um, we've got some announcements, um, got some feedback that we're going to use from uh, for the HR question of the day. And I'm going to share with you how you can get best practices delivered straight to your inbox. And before we go on, I uh, just want to let you guys know that the information available through this podcast is for informational purposes only and not for the purpose of providing any form of legal advice. You should contact your attorney to obtain legal advice with respect to any particular issue. And if you don't have an employment attorney, you may contact me and I may be able to refer one to you through our friends over at Jackson Lewis and our affiliate program. So headlines across the nation. So believe it or not, there's really not much going on. Um, National Labor Relations Act uh, has ruled, not the act itself, but uh, part of the NLRA has ruled that misclassifying workers no longer constitutes an unfair labor practice. So if you are actually working um, with a union, or are faced with a position where you may have a collective bargaining agreement, um, something to check into under NLRB um, is definitely check out that misclassifying workers no longer constitutes what is deemed as an unfair labor practice. Over in Alabama, uh, the new pay equity law takes effect starting September 1st. That has now happened. So if you guys are working in Alabama, please make sure that you are understanding what the new pay equity law is about. Um, and over in California, the governor has extended the employer's deadline to comply with the anti-harassment training requirements for that particular state. So that is delayed. Looks like it's delayed into 2021. And then lastly today, like I said, there isn't very much. Um, employers may face some new challenges and liabilities for violating some of New York's frequency of pay law. So if you're up in New York, make sure that, um, that if you're an employer that you have a really good grip and understanding of what is going on with the frequency of pay law. All right, so today we are going to talk about some of the ways a company can get sued by employee. And I'm going to give you five. And what I think are the absolute top five. So we're going to go backwards. We're going to do the old countdown. 
So number five, <clears throat> the EEO or not abiding by the Equal Pay Act. So what this is referring to basically is that when a company fails to review pay practices to eliminate any type of disparity in pay that can't be explained can definitely get you into trouble. Now the Equal Pay Act um, is a law that's in place that prohibits employers from discriminating between employees on the basis of sex for what is deemed as equal work um, on jobs that require skills at the same level and responsibilities except where payment could be made pursuant to things like seniority, a, leg a legitimate seniority system, a merit system, um, anything that measures earnings by quantity or quality or production or a differential that could be based on other factors outside of sex. Now oddly enough um, there really hasn't been any type of clear cause or definition that is behind the reason why a gender pay gap exists. Um, there are some experts out there that have hinted that there could be some you know contributing factors or some things reasons out there that would uh, you know contribute to that one of them would be uh, women specifically uh, taking an unpaid break in their career to care for children so they could leave their role and stay home and you know be the stay-at-home wife and stay-at-home mom um, in order to go ahead and care for their child um, also women tend to tend to uh, be in the category or be the individuals that are less likely to negotiate pay and raises and promotions. Um, I'm not really quite sure why that is, but that seems to be a call out with some industry uh, specialists. And then also women also could, it could be looked at the women leave certain industries due to inflexible work schedules or there's a perception of discrimination and in some instances when you have a male driven industry um, we could de definitely see how that is in place. So when you're looking at unfair pay practices also remember that the new EEO1 reporting requirements and pay data collection reports for employers with 100 more employees all of that kind of loops into the number five way <laughs> that an employer could get potentially sued by their employees. Alright so number four the next thing that on the top five list uh, that could get an employer sued by an employee is really overlooking ADA accommodations and what is possible. Um, <clears throat> these are ADA claims and settlements are are pretty significant and um, this is one of those moments where if you don't think that what the request is coming through it was a reasonable request under ADA or it's a request that you should uh, you know accommodate I'll be honest with you spending $350 to reach out to your employment attorney and have that conversation with somebody is well worth the money spent rather than having to defend a $350,000 case. So a lot of employers overlook possibilities in accommodating ADA if it applies. And of course, I, you know, it's really hard to get into specifics here because there are so many variables that could kick in that may not necessarily be relevant to your particular ADA case with an employee. But a couple of things 
that could potentially um, lead somebody into a little bit of a hot zone are when an employer requires drug testing and medical, medical exams. Um, if you're not doing that appropriately or if you're requesting it and, and you're kind of flying blind without experience, you're going to wind up getting yourself into some pretty bad stuff. Um, another area that is really, I think the I think the EEOC is really starting to look at more and more as a possibility, especially in a digital age, is that is it possible that the employee can actually work from home? Is that something that's doable? Now, if you're in a manufacturing environment where you have somebody who's working assembly um, and they don't have qualifications for, you know, a position that, you know, could accommodate something like that, well then, you know, that may not be a fit. Um, or if there isn't a position available, <clears throat> that's just one type of an example. Um, that also actually correlates to the next item that I'm calling out. And in order to make that happen, it may re require some form of transfer or reassignment. And if the person is eligible, if there's a position open, you may even have to create one, possibly. kind of depends on the situation. Um, if it's something to where the person has the capabilities and the qualifications to move into another position, that is a that's something that definitely you want to take a look at. It's you know just because somebody may be in an engineering position and is having like a back issue, for instance, and can't sit for an extended period of time, that doesn't necessarily mean that they couldn't be somewhere else where they may be able to stand and be fine. So you know it. it I know that sounds kind of strange, but you know those things do happen. And then also something where an employer is definitely going to want to take a look at overall, overarching, is that, you know, what kind of leave policies do they have in place? And do they have a leave policy that is flexible or something that's too rigid? If it's too rigid, you may bump into some challenges around you know, conforming and adhering to an ADA accommodation. Um, that's certainly something that the EEOC is going to want to know and look at if any type of grievance is, uh, you know, made to the organization. But there's something that's really, really important to understand. And this is the reason why you want to make that call. I mean, even just speaking to an HR professional about this, who's knowledgeable in the area of you know accommodations under the American with Disabilities Act, is what the definition of an undue hardship is. That is very specific. So just because it sounds like it could be a pain in your rump doesn't necessarily mean it is it meets the legal requirements of an undue hardship. So if you have an individual who has uh, a vision issue, and it requires the company to change the nature of their organization or the nature of their layout in their company, um, that could be construed as an undue hardship. And one of the examples I, I love to give is, let's say, for example, you have somebody that works in a library and they're hard of hearing. Well, the nature of a library is that it's a quiet place to sit, read, reflect, and study and do your research. So this person who is hard of hearing, part of their responsibility is to answer the phone for all incoming calls. Well, if they keep missing calls and they say, well, I can't hear, so I'd like to have a bell, a big, big bell in installed <clears throat> in the library. Well, that changes the nature of a library, right? So now you go from a quiet place where you can study, read, reflect, and do your research and work to 
having this loud glaring bell sound which changes the nature of the environment so that's definitely something to look at something specific that I want to call out about when we were talking about leave policies a little bit ago if the company has a policy or a practice that the employee must be 100% healed before the employee may return to work that is going to equate to a lot of trouble and mainly because <clears throat> again <laughs> you're, it, there may be a requirement or a request for an accommodation and being a hundred percent healed with a disability is not something that's going to work out very well so that's something in the policies that I just wanted to do a shout out and we will move on to number three and that is <laughs> overusing an independent contractor. <laughs> so in in the government contracting industry and small business when I run into a lot of people who have not been employers before in the past um, or have been very successful as independent co contractors um, people tend to think well it's like I'll just make them an independent contractor and I'll just have them do whatever because I don't have to pay payroll taxes. Well that's very true but you're also looking at what the requirement is around a span of control so there really is no no definitive line in the sand that is going to identify whether somebody is in fact an independent contractor otherwise known as a 1099 employee versus a w-2 employee right so there's a couple of things that take in place so first off you really need to to take a look at the economy the economic realities test and whether what you are going to have an individual do as a 1099 matches up with that particular test and there's also something that's called a right of control test and again that comes back to like span of control right <clears throat> how much detail and oversight you're going to be giving over on that individual and this is all deemed by the IRS and if you're not 100% sure whether or not somebody is eligible for it or not um, you know you can talk to your you can talk to me you can talk to an employment attorney you can talk to believe it or not you can your CPA um, we're all very familiar with these types of things so it comes down to really at the end of the day is the individual a W-2 employee or are they 1099 contractor and it's all going to be dependent upon the type of work and it's all going to be dependent upon the span of control so I'll give you a for instance. So let's say <clears throat> I have um, a broken computer and or I have let's say I bought you know 15 broken computers and I want to get them fixed and I call up uh, you know somebody that I know that does this and I was like hey listen I got 15 computers that I want to fix I want to hire you to take care of these get the software update so that way I can turn around and use them again. They said no problem. That's it. I've just turned it over. I'm like, this is what I need. Give me a quote and we'll take care of it. Right? So that you're not giving any additional oversight. You have no technical experience on this. All you know is that you have broken computers and you are now turning that work over to somebody who is the professional. They have the equipment, they have the location, they have the software, they have the technology, they have the know-how, they have the manpower, they have their own workstation. They've got all the tools, equipment, and gear to do what it is that they need to do you're not providing anything for them 
and you're not sitting over them and making sure that they're doing this within eight hours a day or, you know, whatever schedule that, you know, you're saying, you're just like, here, I, I need this back in 30 days. So you're giving it broad spectrum, you're relying on their expertise. That really is what, if you were looking at this in a color palette, that is the, the shade of a 1099. Now, when you get into the W2 side, when you're talking about, you're going to work from 8, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. I'm going to give you a desk. You bring your own computer, however, and, um, you know, there's no lunch break. Um, I would want progress reports. I want to see, you know, drafts of the work that you're doing and blah, 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 blah. So the more specific you get, you're moving that needle to a different shade of your color palette when it looks like, you know, the employment law, where you have an individual that really is becoming more of a W-2 employee. So there are benefits to it, and there are things that you need to, you know, be mindful of uh, at the same time. But you know what? The, the Department of Labor and the courts really hone in on this, and if you're in a situation to where you're not 100% sure, gee, is this person really a W-2 employee or is this individual, you know, really a 1099, then my recommendation is definitely, definitely get squared away on that um, quickly and for sure. So the next one, this is kind of a big one. <laughs> I have not reserved this as my number one. Uh, I, I love my number one and, and we're just going to leave that one set for a second but this one is a big one and that is and I and you know what by the time you hear this I guarantee you something's already changed somewhere else but understanding marijuana laws and employment practices I'm telling you this is moving very very quickly um, it, it's even when I we did the episode on CBD usage it was I think it was episode number four with uh, Jeff Nichols which is an awesome episode and um, we've already done one episode around employment laws surrounding the use of marijuana all of that's changed <laughs> so it, it just moves unbelievably quick so if you are in a state where it prohibits uh, recreational use where it prohibits medical use and by the way there's a definite there's a distinct definition between medical use and medical certification so if you don't understand what your state laws are in relation to marijuana, I highly recommend that you find a seminar, um, anything that is specific to your state or the states that you operate in. Because marijuana is still listed on the Schedule 1 as, as far as a controlled substance. And uh, mark my words, and I've said this before, this is eventually going to wind up going to the Supreme Court. Um, the Fed is going to stand fast on this and the states are fighting it by creating their own laws and eventually there's going to be something to where the Fed and the state or states clash and this is going to go to court. Also, if you're an employer, believe it or not, I had this conversation with somebody not too long ago, if you're an employer that actually encourages people to use it because it reduces stress and it sparks creativity, what kind of boundaries are you putting around individuals as far as a limitation? So, you know, there are companies that prohibit employees from actually drinking alcohol when they are at company functions because there's a risk of an employee having a little too much to drink and misrepresenting the company and their behavior and their actions and their words um, and business dealings. That's no different when it comes to marijuana. So, 
I'm not sitting here saying that I'm for or against it. That's not it. But it does come with a price tag of liability associated with it. And these laws are changing rapidly. So if you're an employer that doesn't support employees using marijuana, um, you need to get really clear on what your state laws are from a recreational standpoint, from a medical standpoint, and what you can and can't do to test. I mentioned this before in another episode. That this probably really should have been the number one. <laughs> but, but over in, in the city of New York, starting next year, um, they're prohibiting employers from actually testing for THC in pre-employment drug screening. So, you know, these things are, these things are critical. So if you're in, in, if you're in New York City and you're still using a standard uh, pre-employment screening test and you haven't identified yourself as a city of New York, uh, employer and you're doing this you're you're going to be violating the law here real soon so you know you definitely want to get square on that because trust me employees do their research they are not shy about looking things up and as you may if you've listened to a prior prior episode where I actually identified questions that employees are asking then you'll learn that they ask some pretty interesting questions and the information that is out there is awful. <laughs> I mean if you go to some Q&A websites and people ask a question about something it's amazing. People will put answers out there that really truly don't know the accurate information and it can really open up some it can open up some pretty big crevices and cracks and, and, and cracks in your practice. Alright so the number one, the big one, the bomber <laughs> that employers can do to get themselves into serious, serious hack in uh, legal action is when it comes to making decisions around criminal convictions. Now, specifically what we're talking about is not making an individualized determination or making a decision based off of what the individual uh, what their background is. Now, before I go on, there's a very distinct difference between an arrest and a conviction. In this country, the way I always share people and I educate uh, individuals on this is that in this country, everybody is innocent until they're proven guilty. That's what you want to adhere to when it comes to making a decision based off of an arrest and a conviction. So first off, it is unlawful to make a employment determination based off of an individual's arrest. Now, I'm not talking about whether they are behind, you know, in jail or if they have made their bail, okay? That's not what we're referring to. I'm simply coming back down to have they been arrested, yay or nay, yes or no. You cannot make a determination to terminate somebody if they have been arrested simply because they're arrested. If an individual is in jail and they are not issued bond or bail and or they can't make bail, you still are in your best interest to not separate from them. And if you try and use the, the reason that, well, they can't report to work, you're absolutely right. There's nothing wrong with putting them on an unpaid administrative leave until they work out you know, all their legal issues, meaning that they can remain on payroll, inactive, they're just, the company's identified that we're going to put you on an administrative leave, means that we are, we just simply recognize that you are not able to work at this time, 
until you get this resolved. There's a no harm, no foul. It's the one of the safest things that you can absolutely do. And then um, go ahead and once they have um, either been found, they've, con been, they've been convicted or they have been found not guilty and have been released, then you can address the issue then. Now, we can't talk about that here because, again, that's one of those things where you have a ton of different you know, scenarios and things that can come into place. But when somebody is just simply arrested, my advice, <laughs> and, and just about every attorney will tell you, don't go down that road, okay? Now, if somebody has a criminal conviction, well, <clears throat> um, the criminal conviction in and of itself really can't serve as an absolute benchmark or bar to employment decisions in all cases, meaning you have to take a look at what it was that they were convicted at. So for instance, and this is not this is not anything solidified, but this is a for instance to take into consideration. Let's say you work in a retail environment where you have things that can be pocketed. You have an individual that you've got cash transactions, you've got credit card transactions, you've got, uh, you know, employees have access to financial assets, even though they're limited, uh, but they still have access to that. If you have an individual that has come to apply for a position in their company and they have a criminal history of larceny and ID theft, can you consider not bringing them aboard for that reason? Sure, because you do have to work to protect your organization. Now, this is not a definitive, right? Again, this is not legal advice. All I'm saying is that can you consider it? Yes, you can consider it. If you have an individual who has a DUI conviction that's 35 years old and same retail organization and they want to come in and they apply for a position where they're moving inventory around, <clears throat> but they haven't had any criminal you know, convictions since that one mistake 35 years ago, can you use that against them? Well, at that point, probably not. <laughs> because you know that was 35 years ago that a specific instance took place. If they've maintained a clean record ever since, why wouldn't you want to, right? They could very well be a really good employee. So you really have to spend some time taking a look at the nature and the gravity of that particular offense, all right? The, you know, how long has the time been since that conviction had passed, right? And again, like if you had an individual who, you know, was caught, you know, stealing $200 as a till when they were 18 years old, and they're coming to you and they appear to be in their mid to late 50s and they you know the background check comes back where they don't have any other you know criminal record then you know it's like then that's something that you want to take a look at but then again you also need to align it with the nature of the type of job that they're coming after so if it's a situation like the DUI instance for like if it's within three years and their position requires them to transport individuals uh, to and from different types of facilities or act as a courier or anything like that then your you know then your thought process may have to be a little bit more tuned in a little bit more focused but if you have something that has been around for a while then you know what it's, it, it's all about you know what a reasonable person would do and does it make sense and I'm going to be honest with you one of the best employees I ever hired actually had a DUI conviction that 
was within a two-year window. And um, it's a fantastic story. I mean, I, it was unfortunate that he got it, and he got it in the process of trying to do something where somebody's life was at risk. And it was a matter of, um, this is before the days of Uber and Lyft, and this was, do I wait 20 minutes for a cab um, while my buddy is getting sick just to go, you know, two blocks down the road to get what he needs? Or do I call an, you know, an ambulance that's going to take another five minutes when I can get there in about the same amount of time and get him what he needs? It's, you know, it was just one of those things. And he was a stellar employee, absolutely stellar employee. And he did everything that the court asked and I gave him a chance. And, you know, he worked for the company for many, many years. So I was, I was pretty excited about that. So there you go, my friends. Those are the top Five ways a company can get sued by an employee if they are not paying attention to what it is that they can and cannot do. So today in our affiliate spotlight, we want to let you know about a company that's called eScreen. And eScreen is a, a background screening service that is used specifically for uh, pre-employment drug screening, and it's absolutely fantastic. Um, I've used it for a number of years. It's super simple. You can find clinics by registering the individual or the candidate online all over the United States, and um, I've had a lot of really great it's just an easy program to use. So if you guys are looking for a pre-employment pre pre drug screening company, um, you are welcome to connect with me and I can get you linked up with our folks and our friends over at eScreen. Um, got some announcements for you guys. We do have some workshops that are active for the month of October, November, and December. We've got three opportunities um, to attend the Hiring Talent for Employers workshop. And uh, one of them will actually be a virtual workshop as well. It's live and virtual simultaneously. Uh, also in November, we've got kicking off a successful new year. And we're going to talk about what are some of the best practices that companies can do in order to get themselves set up for a new year. Um, we are also have in December two opportunities where you can learn how you can help grieving employees through the holiday season. So if you are interested in these, uh, any one of these workshops, please visit bestpractices.org, click on the events tab, and then it will actually get you over to the registration page where you can go ahead and join us. Um, we also have some new course, we have a new course that's coming out. Um, online at the HR University by Best Practices and it is open for business officially. This library um, provides online content that is designed to help bring practical and current human resource knowledge to, knowledge to those practicing HR in the field. Uh, the course content ranges from basic compliance to the covering some of the more complex challenges in our industry. So the new course is called Employment Law and Employee Size and what we're going to do is take a look at all the various laws that an employer with a specific size workforce needs to adhere to. Now the release date of this coming up is Saturday, September 21st and you can take advantage of getting a special price. It is the 5 for 50 special offer which means that it, the course will run 50% off for the first five days once the course is released and the new course discount will expire after the fifth day one minute after midnight. So take advantage of the special by offering 
uh, by the offering and clicking the HR University at the top of the bestpractices.org website. And of course, if you guys are looking for some other information, there are two books out there that I have written. The first one is called Holy Cow, I Have to Complete an I-9, which is going to update once we get the official release of the new form and the updated information from uh, USCIS on uh, the M274 book. But this really is intended to accompany the M274 book, which is a very thick book on how to actually fill out an I-9 form. How do you retain it? What do you do? Uh, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? Right? But we're also going to talk about what do you do if you actually get audited. So then there's another book called Holy Cow, I Have to Talk to My Boss, where I share the four rules to building a better working relationship with your boss. And if you're interested in those books, um, you can find them on the bestpractices.org website by clicking shop at the top of the webpage, and you can go ahead and we will ship out your copy directly to you. Now, I always invite people to email me the, your HR questions, and I got a good one for you today. But if you are, if I really want to hear what you guys have to say, so you can submit your question to the bestpractices.org website and click on the podcast link from the menu and down towards the bottom of the podcast is a submission form for you to post your question, which I may read and answer on an upcoming episode. And I'm going to do that today. So I actually, this isn't necessarily a question, this is actually feedback that I got from a listener. And first off, I want to share that I'm, I'm really grateful that this feedback came in because I want to make some clarifications on what was said from a prior episode. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and read to you what was written to me and then I'm going to go ahead and respond to it. So I've been listening to your podcast for a while and found it very helpful. So I was surprised how much I disagreed with your recent episode. I was very put off by the comments in this podcast about those with absentee issues, especially those who are primary caregivers. If you are taking care of a loved one with an illness or have a young child, is the expectation then to quit working? That is not a reality for most people. A person should not be made to feel like they are a bad employee or incapable of doing work just because they might have issues with clocking in at a certain time. I am a single mother and there are times where traffic is worse than anticipated that my daughter has an accident while we are walking out the door. Life happens. I try my best to stay 10 to 15 minutes, but again, I can't punch the clock far beyond what I used to as a single non-caregiver because I have daycare pickup. Does this mean I'm a bad employee? A disruptor, as you called it. Not all parents have the luxury of being in higher management positions where they create their own schedule and are not under the watchful eye if they are a few minutes late. These caregivers are not lazy, rolling out of bed 30 minutes before they should be uh, to work, but yet this podcast assumes that they are. And these situations are often beyond the person's control. Why are we not meeting employees where they are? Taking with them, uh, talking with them about specific tools and resources with EAP programs, understanding that they might really be trying their best through sometimes difficult situation, offering things like a later start or coming together to help them rather than micromanaging and making these employees feel like they're incapable. So first off, I really do appreciate this because I want to make some distinctions on this. So first off, when I when I refer to a business disruptor, an employer's number one responsibility is not to make a profit. <clears throat> the number one responsibility of any employer is to keep the door open to ensure that they can make payroll and they can support and financially compensate their employees pay period after pay period, month after month, year after year. That is the number one responsibility of any employer. So when in a situation comes up where 
inhibits or prohibits an employer from earning that money in order to pay their employees, that is what is being referred to as a disruptor. Okay, When you have a workforce, everybody in the workforce will impact the customer relationship. There isn't a business out there that doesn't operate without some consumer. And it's either indirect or direct impact. So if it's a client-facing employee, if somebody's not showing up, and that client-facing employee therefore inhibits or prohibits the employer from earning that money so that they can pay for their employees and compensate them, that is viewed as a disruptor. If it's an individual that supports client-facing employees and collectively the actions of those individuals prohibit the client-facing employee from performing their duty, which inhibits or prohibits an employer from earning that revenue so that they can compensate their employees, that is a disruptor. So the individuals in and of themselves are not disruptors. It's actually what they are doing that inhibits or prohibits an employer from earning that revenue in order to do that. Now, a lot of companies in the U.S. are not, don't have all of their employees sitting down behind a desk working salaried positions. What I'm referring to are individuals that well, it could be individuals sitting down at a desk working in a more technical position, but you also have companies that have a delivery system of service or a delivery system of goods and a delivery system of durable goods, right? So think about what happens, and I use retail a lot because that's an easy one. So what would happen if we had seven people that were scheduled to open a big box retail chain store and only two of those individuals actually showed up because the other five were late. And the store had to open with barely a skeleton crew, hardly anything that would be able to uh, you know, sustain business. Would that be considered a disruption to business? Absolutely. So the store would still have to open in big box retail, just so you guys know, you don't not open. <laughs> the only way you not open is if you get a directive from either the district manager, regional manager, or the corporate office. And that is going to be a pretty extreme situation. So if your store is not opening, you also tend to get penalized by the landlord or the mall or whoever's, wherever that agreement is. So there's a financial penalty as well as not bringing in money. So that is a disruptor. But when you have individuals that are consistently not showing up, that disrupts. So are they bad employees? No, they're not bad employees. No one, no one ever said that an individual was a horrible or bad employee. But it does inhibit or prohibit or make it more difficult for an employer to get the job done so they can service the customer and they can get that money in. So this show is about talking to business owners and business operators on how to overcome these challenges. And this is what this conversation is targeted to. So when you do have individuals, and you know, I'll be honest with you, I have had individuals who are primary caregivers that are horrendously late, but they inhibit and prohibit a business from operating and functioning 
so that way we can pay employees because when a person is late it not only impacts their ability to earn money it impacts everybody's ability to earn a paycheck and so that's what has to be reined in now meeting an employee where they are I tend to agree with that to a limit and I think that is way in the beginning stages so when you have an individual that appears to be having some challenges yes you should be having a conversation with them but the problem is not the employers the problem that needs to be fixed is on the ownership of the employee It is the employee who has a schedule and if they're not showing up for it that is the employees problem to fix it is the employers issue to address so that is a very clear distinction that I want to make as well there are individuals that are lazy and roll out of bed 30 minutes late but the and those people also need to be addressed in a similar manner as well but EAP programs may not necessarily be the sole source or be an effective tool to address attendance issues um, it all depends on what the situation is and it's not anything that anybody can really read into but the thing is is that attendance is something that is a business disruptor and it can be a business disruptor if it prohibits or inhibits a company from earning revenue so that they can compensate their employees for work that has been performed so I agree meeting somebody where they are but that has an expiration point and I'm going to tell you right now even if I had never had that episode never broadcasted that episode or talked about you know this particular feedback and giving these distinctions no matter how much an employer wants to support their employees is about the employees wants to do whatever they can to make sure that the work environment is great I promise you at some point in time if an attendance an employee's attendance is an issue it will get dealt with and all of that other stuff will be set aside especially if it is that consistent and so what a disruptor really is is really more of a consistent more significant issue rather than just one person coming in 10 minutes late once every six months <clears throat> so I want to make sure we get that distinction so I, I love the fact that you wrote it thank you very much I think it's great look life happens right but if the employee is making a concerted effort to overcome those obstacles then the disruption is less and the impact is not as high and when the impact is high it doesn't matter what I say what you say the employer is going to deal with it Get, promise you <laughs> they are just going to handle it and it is very frustrating when you are an employer or when you're a supervisor when you have somebody that just can't seem to make it in you can do schedule adjustments you know there are things that you can do you can meet halfway at the table but if that person is not able to get it get it right it's going to get managed that is for sure so I really appreciate it and so for those of you again please send in your information that was fantastic I really do appreciate it and um, I look forward to hearing more about what people say um, so if you guys want to find out what I'm doing and what I'm up to please feel free to go ahead and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at best practices in HR you can also follow me on Twitter LinkedIn and YouTube under Brenda Neckvottel and my last name is spelled N is in Nancy E-C-K V is in Victor A-T-A-L and you can also find me on bestpractices.work jump on the mailing list and get the latest and greatest this is how you get some of these best practices to your inbox and that is you get an opportunity to find out what is going on 
uh, a little bit sooner on some of the real special things that are coming up. So, folks, thank you again for joining me today. Um, I am so excited to be back into the swing of things. I, I apologize for the last two weeks. Um, if you notice that in the beginning of the episode, I in the past, that I usually give a call out uh, to Champ the Wonder Dog and Lola the Veteran Comfort Dog, but unfortunately, two weeks ago, um, Champ, who was 14 and a half years old, made his trip across the Rainbow Bridge, and um, so... He is sorely, sorely missed, and Lola is still hanging around doing her thing, uh, but we kind of kept the programming a little bit tight, um, as the team here has definitely felt the impact of not having that little rascal around. So, But again, folks, thank you so very much for joining us and joining me. Uh, I really, truly, great, greatly, greatly appreciate it. we got other really awesome shows coming up, and I will talk to you guys real soon. Take care. Bye.